Today I'll be speaking with Stuart Russell. He is a professor of computer science and engineering at UC Berkeley. He's also a adjunct professor of neurological surgery at UC San Francisco. He is the author of the most widely read textbook on the subject of AI, Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. And over the course of these 90 minutes or so, we explore the topics that you may have heard me raise in my TED Talk. Anyway, Stuart is an expert in this field and a wealth of information, and I hope you find this conversation as useful as I did. I increasingly think that this is a, a topic that will become more and more pressing every day, and if it doesn't for some reason, it will only be because scarier things have distracted us from it. So things are going well if we worry more and more about the consequences of AI, or so it seems to me. And now I give you Stuart Russell. I'm here with Stuart Russell. Stuart, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Our listeners should know you've been up nearly all night working on a paper relevant to our topic at hand. So double thank you for doing this. No problem. I hope I will be coherent. Well, you've got now nearly infinite latitude not to be. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what you do. How do you describe your job at this point? So I'm a professor at Berkeley, a computer scientist, uh, and I've worked in the area of artificial intelligence for about 35 years now, um, starting with my PhD at Stanford. For most of that time, I've been what you might call a mainstream AI researcher. Uh, I work on machine learning and probabilistic reasoning, planning, game playing, all the things that that AI people work on. Uh, and then the last few years, um, although this has been something that's, that's concerned me for, for a long time, um, I wrote a textbook in 1994 where I had a, a section of a chapter talking about what happens if we succeed in AI, meaning what happens if we actually build machines that are more intelligent than us. Uh, what does that mean? Um, so that was sort of a, an intellectual question, and it's become... Um, a little bit more urgent in the last few years as progress is accelerating and the resources going into AI uh, have grown enormously. So I'm really asking people to take the question seriously. What happens if we succeed? As you know, I've joined the chorus of people who really in the last two years have begun worrying out loud about the consequences of AI or the consequences of, our, of us not building it with more or less perfect conformity to our interests. And one of the things about this chorus is that it's mostly made up of non-computer scientists, and therefore people like myself or Elon Musk or even physicists like Max Tegmark and Stephen Hawking are seemingly dismissed with alacrity by computer scientists who are deeply skeptical of these worried noises we're making. And now you are not so easily dismissed because you are, you have the, the really the perfect bona fides of a computer scientist. So I want to get us into this territory. And I actually want, you know, I don't actually know that you are quite as worried as, as I have sounded publicly. So if there's any difference between 
your take and mine, that would be interesting to explore. But I also want us to, to at some point, I'd like you to express the, the soundest basis for this kind of skepticism that, you know, that we are crying wolf in a way that is unwarranted. But, but before we get there, I just want to ask you a few questions to, to get our bearings. The main purpose here is also just to educate our listeners about you know, what artificial intelligence is and what its implications are, whether if everything goes well or if everything goes less than well. So a very a disarmingly simple question here at first, mm-hmm. what is a computer? Well, <laughs> uh, so pretty much everyone these days has a computer, but um, doesn't necessarily understand what it is. Uh, the way it's presented to the public, whether it's your, your smartphone or your laptop, is something that runs a bunch of applications, and the applications do things like you know, edit Word documents, um, allow you know, face-to-face video chat, and things like that. Um, and what people may not understand is, is that a computer is, is a universal machine, that any process that can be described precisely can be carried out uh, by a computer. And, and every computer can simulate every other computer. Uh, and this, this property of universality means that um, uh, that intelligence itself is something that a computer can, in principle, uh, emulate. And this was realized, uh, among other mm. people, by Ada Lovelace in the 1850s when she was working with Charles Babbage. Um, they had this idea that the machine they were designing might be a, a universal machine, although they couldn't define that very precisely. Um, and so the immediate thought is, well, if it's universal, then it can uh, it can carry out the processes of intelligence um, as well as you know ordinary mechanical calculations. So a computer, a computer is really anything, anything you want uh, that you can describe precisely enough to turn into a program. So relate the concept of information to that. These sound like very simple questions, but these are, you know, <laughs> disconcertingly deep questions, I'm aware. I think everyone understands that um, out there is, is a world, the real world. Um, and we don't know everything about the real world. So it could be one way or it could be another. In fact, it could be there's a gazillion different ways the world could be. You know, all, all the cars that are out there parked could be parked in different places and I wouldn't even know it. So there are many, many ways the world could be. And information is just something that uh, tells you uh, a little bit more about what, uh, you know, what the world is, which, which way is the, is the real world out of all the possibilities that it could be. And as you get more and more information about the world through, typically we get it through our eyes and ears, uh, and increasingly we're getting it through the internet, um, then that, that information helps to, helps to narrow down the ways that the real world could be. And Shannon, uh, who is a, uh, electrical engineer at MIT, uh, figured out a way to actually quantify the amount of information. So um, if you think about uh, a coin flip, um, if I can tell you which way that coin is going to come out, uh, heads or tails, then that that's one bit of information. And uh, so that lets you give you gives you the answer for a binary choice between two things. And uh, so from information theory, we have um, 
we have wireless communication, we have the internet, we have all, uh, you know, the, all the things that allow computers to, to talk to each other through the physical uh, medium. So information theory uh, has been, in some sense, the, the complement or the handmaiden of, of computation um, and allowing, uh, allowing the whole information revolution to happen. Now, is there an important difference between what you just described computers and, and the information they process and minds. Let's leave consciousness aside for the, for the moment, but if I asked you, what is a mind, would you have answered that question differently? So I, I think I would because the mind, the word mind carries with it um, this, this notion, as you, as you say, of consciousness. It's not, uh, with the word mind, you can't really put aside the notion of consciousness. Except if you're talking, I mean, if you're talking about a, the unconscious mind, you know, like the, all the unconscious cognitive processing we do, does mind seem a misnomer there without consciousness? It might, yeah. Unconscious mind is kind of like saying artificial grass. It isn't grass, but it kind of is like grass. Um, so just to give you a quote, John Hoagland has written a lot about uh, AI. He's a philosopher, and he he describes uh, the notion of strong AI, as it, as it used to be called, uh, as building machines with minds in the full and literal sense. Mm. Um, so, so the word mind there is really carrying the idea that there is true conscious awareness, true semantic understanding uh, and perception, you know, perception, ex perceptual experience. And I actually think this is an incredibly important thing because without that, nothing has moral value. There are lots of complicated physical processes in the universe, um, you know, stars exploding and rivers and, you know, glaciers melting and all kinds of things like that. But none of that has any moral value uh, associated with it. The things that generate moral value are things that have conscious experience. So it's, that's a really, it's a really important topic, but AI has nothing to say about it whatsoever. Well, not yet. I guess so that we're, we're going to get there in, in terms of if consciousness is at some level just an emergent property of information processing, if in fact that is the punchline at the back of the book of nature, well, then we need to think about the implications of building conscious machines, not just intelligent machines. But you introduced a, a term here, which we should define. You talked about strong versus weak AI, and, and I guess the, the more modern terms are narrow versus general artificial intelligence. Can you define those for us? Right. So the, the word the the word strong and weak have actually changed their meaning over time. Um, so strong AI was, I believe, a phrase introduced by John Searle in his uh, Chinese Room paper, or it may have been slightly earlier than that. But what he meant was the version of AI that says that if I build something with human level intelligence, then in all probability, it's going to be a conscious device that that the the functional properties of intelligence and consciousness are inseparable. Mm. Um, and so, strong AI is the sort of the super ambitious form of AI, and uh, weak AI was about building AI systems that have capabilities that you want that you want them to have, uh, but they don't necessarily have the uh, the consciousness or the the first person experience. Uh, so that, and then and then I think there's been a number of 
uh, people both inside and outside the field sort of using strong and weak AI in, in various different ways. And now, largely, you will see strong AI and sometimes general AI or, or artificial general intelligence to mean uh, building AI systems that have the capabilities comparable to or greater than those of humans without any opinion being given on whether there's consciousness mm. or not. Uh, and then narrow AI, meaning AI systems that don't have the generality. They might be very capable, like you know, AlphaGo is a very capable Go player, but it's narrow in the sense that it can't do anything else. So we don't think of it as general purpose intelligence. Right. And given that consciousness is something that uh, we just don't have uh, a philosophical handle, let alone a, a scientific handle on. Um, I think for the time being, we'll just have to put it to one side. And the discussion uh, is going to have to focus on capabilities, on, on the functional properties of, of intelligent systems. Well, there's this other term one hears in this area, which strikes me as a an actual a term that that names almost nothing possible but it's human level ai and that is you know it's often put forward as kind of the the nearer landmark to super intelligent ai or something that's beyond human but it seems to me that even our narrow ai at this point you know the the calculator in your phone or anything else that gets good enough for us to dignify it with the name intelligence very quickly becomes superhuman, even in its narrowness. So you know, the phone is a better calculator than, than I am or will ever be. And if you imagine building a system that is a true general intelligence, it's, it's learning is not confined to one domain as opposed to another, but it's much more like a human being and that it can learn across a wide range of domains without having the you know learning in one domain degrade its learning in another you very quickly if not immediately we'll be talking about superhuman ai because presumably this system will it's not going to be a worse calculator than my phone right it's not going to be a worse chess player than deep blue it's not, at, at a certain point it's going to very quickly be better than humans at everything it can do so is is human level ai a mirage, or is it is there some serviceable way to to think about that concept? So I think human level AI is is just uh, a notional goal, and I I basically agree with you that if if we can achieve the generality of human intelligence, then we will probably exceed on many dimensions the actual capabilities of humans. So there are there are things that humans do that we really have no idea how to do yet. For example, what, what humans have done collectively in terms of creating science, we don't know how to get machines to do something like that. Um, I mean, we can, we can imagine that theoretically it's possible, you know, it's some, somewhere in the space of programs, uh, there exists a program that, that could be uh, a high quality scientist, but we don't, we don't know how to make anything like that. So it, it's possible that we could have human level capabilities on sort of mon on all the mundane intellectual tasks that don't require these really creative reformulations of our whole conceptual structure uh, that happen from time to time in science. And, and 
this is sort of what what's happening already, right? I mean, in 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 as you say, in in areas where computers become competent, they they quickly become super competent. And so we could have super competence across all the mundane areas, like you know the ability to to read a book and answer sort of the kinds of questions that you know uh, an undergraduate could answer by reading a t uh, reading a book. Uh, we might see those kinds of capabilities, but it might be then quite a bit uh, more work, uh, which which may we may not uh, learn how to do to get it to come up with the kinds of answers that the, you know, a truly creative and deep thinking human uh, could do from, from looking at the same material. Um, but this is, this is something that at the moment is very speculative. I mean, what we, what we do see is the beginning of generality. So you'll often see people in the media claiming, oh, well, you know, computers can only do what they're programmed to do. They're only good at narrow tasks. But when you look at, for example, DQN, which was Google DeepMind's uh, first system that they demonstrated, so this learned to play video games, and mm. it learned completely from scratch. So it was like a newborn baby opening its eyes for the first time. It has no idea what kind of a world it's in. It doesn't know that there are objects or that things move or there's such a thing as time or good guys and bad guys or cars or roads or bullets or spaceships or anything, just like a newborn baby. And then within a few hours of messing around with, with the video game, uh, essentially through a camera, so it's really just looking at the screen. Mm. It doesn't have direct access to the internal structures of the game at all. It's looking at the screen. Very much the way a human being yeah. is interfacing with the game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the only thing it knows is, is that it wants to get more points. Um, and uh, so within a few hours, it, it's able to learn a wide range. So, so most of the games that Atari produced, it reaches a superhuman level of performance in a few hours, entirely starting from nothing. And it's important to say that it's the same algorithm playing all the games. It's not, this is not like Deep Blue that is the best chess player, but he can't play tic-tac-toe and will never play tic-tac-toe. This is a completely different Correct. approach. Yeah. This this is this is one algorithm. You know, it could be a driving game, it could be Space Invaders, it could be Pac-Man, it could be undersea, you know, Sea Quest with submarines. Um, so in that sense, and when you look at that, you know, if your baby did that, woke up, you know, <laughs> the first day in the hospital, and by the end of the day was was beating everyone, beating all the doctors at Atari video games, you'd be pretty terrified. <laughs> um, so you know, and it it's demonstrating generality up to a point. Right? There, there are certain characteristics of video games that don't hold for the real world in general. The main, the, one of the main things being that uh, in a video game, the idea is that you can see everything on the screen. Um, but in the course in the real world, at any given point, there's tons of the real world that you can't see. Um, but it, all, it still matters. And then also with video games, they, they tend to have very short horizons because you're supposed to you know, play them in the pub when you're drunk or, or whatever. So they typically, unlike chess, they don't require deep thought about the long-term consequences of your choices. So, but, you know, other than those two things, which are certainly important, uh, something like DQN and, and various other reinforcement learning systems are beginning to show generality. And we're seeing with the, with the work in computer vision, 
that the same basic technology, these the convolutional deep networks, um, and with their and their recurrent cousins, that these technologies with fairly small modifications, not really conceptual changes, just sort of minor changes in the in the details of the architecture, can learn a wide range of of tasks to to an extremely high level, including recognizing thousands of different categories of objects in photographs, uh, doing speech recognition, uh, learning to even write captions for photographs, learning to predict what's going to happen next in a video and so on and so forth. So, so I think we're arguably, you know, if, if there is going to be uh, an explosion uh, of capabilities that feeds on itself, I think we may be seeing the beginning of it. Mm. Now, what are the implications with respect to how people are designing these systems? So if I'm not mistaken, most, if not all of these deep learning approaches or more generally machine learning approaches are essentially black boxes in which you can't really inspect how the, the algorithm is accomplishing what it is accomplishing. Is that the case? And if so, or wherever it is the case, are there implications there that we need to be worried about? Or is that just a novel way of doing business, which doesn't raise any special concerns? Well, I, I think it raises two kinds of concerns. One, um, maybe three. So one is a, a very, very practical problem that when it's not working, uh, you really don't know why it's not working. Hmm. Uh, and there is a certain amount of blundering about in the dark. Some people call this graduate student descent, uh, which is, that's a very nerdy joke. Uh, so great gradient descent is, or, you know, walking down, down a hill mm -hmm. is a, is a way to find the lowest point. Right. Um, and so graduate student descent, meaning that you're, you're trying out different system designs and in the process you're using up graduate students mm -hmm. at a rapid rate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that is a, that's clearly a drawback. Um, you know, and I, in my research, I've generally favored techniques where the design of the system is derived from the characteristics of the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and so the, the function of each of the components is clearly understood and you can, you can show that the system is going to do what it's supposed to do for the right reasons. Uh, and the black box approach, there are people who just seem to have great intuition about how to design the architecture of these deep learning networks so that they uh, they produce good performance. I think there are also practical questions from the legal point of view, that there are a lot of areas, for example, uh, medical diagnosis or treatment recommendations recommending for or against parole uh, for, uh, for prisoners, um, approving credit or declining credit applications mm. where you really want a clear explanation of, of why the recommendation is being made. Uh, and without that, this, people simply won't accept uh, that the system is used. Mm. Uh, and in some, you know, and one, one of the reasons for that is that uh, a black box could uh, be making decisions that are biased, uh, you know, racially biased, for example, uh, and without the ability to explain itself, um, then you you can't trust that the, the system is unbiased. And then there's a third set of reasons, which I think is what's behind your question, 
about why we might be concerned with with systems that are entirely black box that we since we can't understand uh, how the system is is reaching its decisions or or, or what it's doing um, that gives us much less control so as we move towards more and more capable and perhaps uh, general intelligence systems the fact that we really might have no idea how they're working or what they're thinking about so to speak uh, that would give you some concern because then one one of the reasons that the AI community often gives for why then they're not worried, right? So the, the people who are skeptical about there being a risk is that, well, we design these systems, you know, obviously we would, we would design them so that they did what we want. Mm. But if they are completely opaque black boxes that you don't know what they're doing, then that, that sense of uh, control and safety disappears. Let's talk about that issue of what Bostrom called the control problem. I guess we could call it the safety problem as well. And this is, many people listening will have watched my TED Talk where I spend 14 minutes worrying about this. But just perhaps you can briefly sketch the concern here. What is, what is the concern about general AI getting away from us? How do you articulate that? Um, so you mentioned earlier that this is a concern that's been articulated by non-computer scientists. And Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, was certainly instrumental in bringing it to the attention of a, of a wide audience, you know, people like Bill Gates uh, and Elon Musk and so on. But the fact is that these concerns have been articulated by the central figures in computer science and AI. So I'm actually going to... Going back to I.J. Good and von Neumann. Uh, well, and, and Alan Turing mm. himself. Right. Um, so people, a lot of people may not know about this, but I'm just going to read a little quote. So Alan Turing gave a talk on, uh, BBC radio, radio three in 1951. Um, so he said, if a machine can think, it might think more intelligently than we do. And then where should we be? Even if we could keep the machines in a subservient position, for instance, by turning off the power at strategic moments, we should, as a species, feel greatly humbled. This new danger is certainly something which can give us anxiety. So that's a pretty clear, you know, if we achieve superintelligent AI, we could have uh, a serious problem. Another person who talked about this issue was Norbert Wiener. Mm. Uh, so Norbert Wiener was the uh, one of the leading applied mathematicians of the 20th century. He was uh, the founder of, of a good deal of modern control theory um, and uh, automation. He's uh, often called the father of cybernetics. So he was, he was concerned because he saw Arthur Samuel's checker playing program uh, in 1959, uh, learning to play checkers by itself, a little bit like the DQN that I described learning to play video games, but this is 1959, uh, so more than 50 years ago, learning to play checkers better than its creator. And he saw clearly in this the seeds of the possibility of systems that could outdistance human beings in general. So, and he, he was more specific about what the problem is. So, so Turing's warning is, in some sense, the same concern that gorillas might have had about humans. If they had thought, you know, sh 
a few million years ago when the human species branched off from from the evolutionary line of the gorillas, if the gorillas had said to themselves, you know, should we create these human beings, right? They're going to be much smarter than us. Yeah, it kind of makes me worried, mm-hmm. right? And and the, probably they would have been right to worry because as a species, they're they sort of completely lost control over their own future and and humans control everything that uh, that they care about. So so a Turing is really talking about this general sense of unease about making something smarter than you. Is that a good idea? And what Wiener said was was this, if we use to achieve our purposes, a mechanical agency with whose operation we cannot interfere effectively, we had better be quite sure that the purpose put into the machine is the purpose which we really desire. So this is 1860. Nowadays, we call this the value alignment problem. How do we make sure that the the values that the machine is trying to optimize are in fact the values of the human who is trying to get the machine to do something or the values of the human race in in general? Um, And so Wiener actually points to the Sorcerer's Apprentice story uh, as a typical example of when, when you give uh, a goal to a machine, in this case, fetch water, if you don't specify it correctly, if you don't cross every T and dot every I and make sure you've covered everything, then the machines being optimizers, they will find ways to do things that you don't expect. Uh, and those ways may make you very unhappy. Uh, and this story goes back you know, to King Midas uh, you know, 500 and whatever BC, um, where he got exactly what he said, which is everything turns to gold, uh, which is definitely not what he wanted. He didn't want his food and water to turn to gold or his relatives to turn to gold, but he got what he said he wanted. And all of the stories with the genies, the same thing, right? You, you give a wish to a genie, the genie carries out your wish very literally. And then, you know, the third wish is always, you know, can you undo the first two? Because mm. I got them wrong. And the problem with superintelligent AI uh, is that you might not be able to have that third wish, or even a even a second wish. Yeah. So if you so if you get it wrong, you know, and you might wish for something very benign sounding, like you know, could you cure cancer? But if if you haven't told the machine that you want cancer cured, but you also want human beings to be alive, so a simple way to cure cancer in humans is not to have any humans. Um, a quick way to come up with a cure for cancer is to use the entire human race as guinea pigs for for millions of different potential uh, drugs that might cure cancer. Mm. Um, so there's all kinds of ways things can go wrong. And, you know, we have, you know, governments all over the world try to write tax laws that don't have these kinds of loopholes and they fail over and over and over again. And they're only competing against ordinary humans, you know, tax lawyers and, and rich people. Um, and, and yet they still fail despite there being billions of dollars at stake. Mm. So our track record of being able to specify objectives and constraints completely so that we are sure to be happy with the results, uh, our track record is is abysmal. And unfortunately, we don't really have a scientific discipline for how to do this. So generally, we have all these scientific disciplines, AI, control theory, economics, operations, research, that are about how do you optimize an objective? 
but none of them are about, well, what should the objective be so that we're happy with the results? So that's really, I think, the modern understanding uh, as described in Bostrom's book and, and other papers of why a super intelligent machine could be problematic. It's because if we give it an objective which is different from what we really want, then we, we, we're basically like, like creating a chess match with a machine right now. There's us with our objective and it with the objective we gave it, which is different from what we really want. So it's kind of like having a chess match for the whole world. Mm. Uh, and we're not too good at beating machines at chess. So that's a great, that's a great image, a chess match for the whole world. I want to drill down on a couple of things you just said there, because I'm hearing the, the skeptical voice, even in my own head, even though I, I think I have smothered it over the last year of focusing on this, but it's mm -hmm. amazingly easy even for someone like me, and this was really kind of the, the, the framing of my TED talk, where it, it's just, I was talking about these concerns and the, and the value alignment problem, essentially. But the real message of my talk was that it's very hard to take this seriously, emotionally, even when you are taking it seriously, intellectually. There's something so diaphanous about these concerns, and they seem so far-fetched even though you can't give an account, or I ha certainly haven't heard anyone give an account of why, in fact, they are far-fetched when you look closely at them. So, like, you know, the idea that you could build a machine that is super intelligent and give it the instruction to cure cancer or fetch water and not have anticipated that one possible solution to that problem was to kill all of humanity or to fetch the water from your own body. And... That just seems we have an assumption that things couldn't conceivably go wrong in that way. And I think the most compelling version of, of pushback on that front has come to me from people like David Deutsch, who you probably know. He's you know, one of the, the father of, of quantum computing or, or the, the concept there, a physicist at Oxford who's been on the podcast. He argues, and this is, this is something that I, I don't find compelling, but I just want to put it forward, and I've told him as much, he argues that superintelligence entails an ethics. If we've built a superintelligent system, we will have given it our ethics in some to some approximation, but it will have a better ethics than ourselves, almost by definition. And to worry about the values of any intelligent systems we build is analogous to worrying about the values of our descendants or our future teenagers, where they might have different values, but they are an extension of ourselves. And now we're talking about a, an extension of ourselves that is more intelligent than we are across the board. And I could be slightly misrepresenting him here, but this is close to what he advocates, that there's, there's something about that that should give us comfort, you know, almost in principle, that there's just no... Obviously, we could stupidly build a system that's going to play chess for the, the whole world against us, that is malicious, but we wouldn't do that. And what we will build is by definition going to be a more intelligent extension of the best of our ethics. I mean, that that's a, a nice dream, but as far as I can see, it's, uh, it's nothing more than that. There's no reason why the capability to make decisions successfully is associated with any particular 
goal structure or family of goal structures. So let me give you a, a much simpler example. Mm. Uh, take a chessboard. You can look at a chessboard and you could say, well, the notion of checkmate is just kind of inherent in, in the chessboard and any intelligent system would see from the chessboard and, and, and the shapes of the pieces that that checkmate is, is the inherent objective of this game and, and would therefore, you know, learn to play chess in, you know, and, and be an enjoyable chess partner for us. But this is completely false because you can play regular chess or you can play suicide chess. And these are two completely, in some sense, opposite objectives. They're op opposite definitions of what winning means mm. in the game. Uh, and neither of them is inherent to the chessboard. And I can build a program to do either of these two things. So there's no, there's no sense in which objectives that would tend to produce behavior that that we are happy with uh, are just intrinsic to the world. You know, yeah. bacteria certainly don't don't think that, uh, and viruses and so on. They they just do whatever they do to achieve whatever they want, which is you know which evolution has has created them to do. So it, it just it just seems like a wishful thinking that has absolutely no causal basis um, other than that you want it to be true. The fact that humans, I mean, talking about analogy to our own descendants, so humans have evolved um, over, well, arguably hundreds of millions of years um, to function in a certain way. And one of the things that we have is we have built in biological wiring that gives information about what is desirable. Uh, we don't like hunger, we don't like pain, we are drawn to pleasure and so on, and you know, the desire to reproduce. These things are built in biologically. They're approximations to what we might think of as an evolutionary fitness function. They're, uh, and sometimes they're not very good approximations. For example, Many of them can be satisfied by by ingesting certain chemicals, um, and that usually does not lead to evolutionary fitness, uh, even though it satisfies all you know seems to satisfy all the bi the biological wiring. So, in some sense, we can we can short circuit and fool the the drives that biology has built into us uh, in a way that uh, would would be evolutionarily unfit. But we also have, uh, I think, a way of learning about our, you know, what our objectives are and should be from observing the behavior of other people around us. And this, this is a key idea that um, we've been using in our work on value alignment, which is the idea that when any intelligent entity behaves in the world, it's revealing information about its internal preference structure, about what it wants. You know, and this, this is a very common sense idea, right? If you see me struggling out of bed and bleary-eyed, going down to the kitchen and doing stuff with a machine that makes grinding and steamy noises and so on, and eventually I get myself a cup of coffee and I drink it, you can tell from all this behavior that, that that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I want to get, I want to have a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, 
and it's perfectly normal that as humans perceive each other, we are constantly trying to explain. I mean, this is sort of how, you know, how the human mind works. We're, we're always trying to explain what we perceive. And when we're perceiving intelligent behavior by others, we're internally explaining it in terms of objectives. Hmm. And I think it's likely that the human species actually has a built-in process, not just for explaining the behavior of others in terms of objectives, but actually then um, assuming those objectives for ourselves as, as we grow up. Um, so we internalize and then they become our own objectives uh, because they are explaining the behavior of our peers and parents and so on. So, and I don't mean to say that this is the the end of the story, but but these two things, the the biological wiring, and this more social process, which you, which people sometimes call t- cultural transmission of value systems, but it's not necessarily cultural transmission by, you know, someone explaining to you, okay, this these are the values of our culture: rule one, rule two, rule three. This is much more pervasive process of of observing and absorbing. Uh, values from from the behavior of everybody else in your society. Hmm. So I think these these processes are very complicated, and they still don't work that well. I mean, from time to time, groups of humans uh, sort of go off the deep end uh, and end up with value systems that are highly inimical to the continued existence of the group. So they you know they can come cultures that are very violent or nihilistic uh, and and that doesn't end up well you know thing, things don't go well for groups that develop those kinds of value systems but what about the related claim where that we will will be safe because we will tether these super intelligent machines quite literally to our brains we will essentially become the limbic system of these new machines and therefore by definition their goals both long-term and instrumental will be anchored to our own value system you see that as a durable basis for hope uh not really um i do think that's a possible direction that that we we may see uh electronic enhancement of human cognition uh and some people hold that out as a hope, in the sense that we'll grow our own intelligence by by electronic prosthesis, uh, and that will enable us to compete in this chess match that people think of as inevitable. And in fairness, I should say, I think that's David Deutsch's position as well. There'll be extensions of ourselves in in every conceivable sense. Uh, but we don't use machines currently that way. I mean, there there are lots of. I mean, there are just lots and lots of machines. You know, there are some machines that kind of are extensions of ourselves. You know, maybe maybe my laptop is is an extension. It, it sort of serves as an external memory and and a remote communication device and so on. But you know, when I think about a hydroelectric power station, I don't think it's it's not an extension of myself. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a whole other thing. Um, you know, a bicycle is sort of an extension of myself, but is a is a jet aircraft and it's just an extension to me? No, I mean it's 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 quite happy to fly around without me, uh, or I could be a passenger in it. Um, and I think we will we will have 
intelligent systems that are separate from our brains, physically separate. Um, and you know, we we want that. We want robots that can, you know, where we can say, okay, you know, go into this coal mine and, and rescue the miners who are buried in some rockfall. Um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why why you want autonomy and not have only devices that are physically connected to our own brains. What I want to do actually is, is get away from this idea that, that we're forecasting, we're either forecasting doom or we're forecasting utopia. It, it seems that there are development paths we could follow that that don't seem to have very good long-term prospects for the human race, and there are other paths that do. And I think what we have to do is find the paths that do have good long-term prospects for the human race. And that means understanding how to design AI systems so that they are highly capable, that they do the kinds of things that we want them to be able to do, but at the same time um, that they remain fully under our control. And so this is this is the goal. So I, ha I have a new center uh, that was funded by the Open Philanthropy Project. Uh, and so that's the goal of the center is we're calling it provably beneficial Mm. AI systems. We would like, you know, not and not sort of pious hopes that if we design things this design things this way, uh, it should be good. We actually want mathematical theorems saying that certain kinds of designs for AI systems are intrinsically safe. And oddly enough, it's quite easy to explain in a sense one key idea. So if you go back to what Wiener said, right, we better be quite sure that the purpose put into the machine is the purpose which we really desire. So that that's operating on the assumption that the only way to design an intelligent machine is that we formulate the objective and we put it into the machine. And that's precisely the source of the problem, right? That if we don't put exactly the right objective and we really don't even know how to write it down properly, mm. uh, then we're going to have all these problems. Um, but can you can you have useful machines where you don't put in a precise objective? And the answer seems to be yes. Um, we want the machine, you know, particularly because we don't even know ourselves really what our what our true objectives are and what will truly make us happy or not happy. At least we don't know it yet. Mm. Then we want the machine to be explicitly uncertain about the objective that the human has. The machine's goal is still to try to optimize it to help the human achieve whatever it is they really want, but the machine needs to be clear that it doesn't know what that is, or at least it doesn't know it precisely. And oddly enough, this is this sounds like a very simple idea, but it hasn't really been explored in the field um, because, as I as I mentioned earlier, you know all these fields, AI, statistics, operations, research, control theory, they all assume that the objective is just something that's exogenously specified mm. and is sort of by definition correct uh, and is put into the machine. And what what I would argue is that that's, that assumption is false. And if we have machines that are uncertain about the objective, then they will behave in very different ways. For example, they will, they will ask questions like, well, would it be a good idea if I did this? Or did you, do you, did you really mean Mm -hmm. That you want everything to turn to gold, or okay, how about it doesn't sound right. It's not consistent with other things you said in the past. 
you know, maybe what you meant was just the things I point to and say abracadabra. Well, then I'll make those t things turn into gold. But, you know, you don't want your food and drink turning into gold because then you'd be dead. And I know I'm pretty sure you don't want to be dead. Right. So that's the kind of conversation you want to have with AI system. And it can only happen with an AI system that is explicitly uncertain about your objective. And you can tell it all kinds of things about what you want. And this is just, it's evident about what you really want, but it should never be taken as literal truth about what you want. And by definition, it would remain perpetually open to your saying, that's not what I wanted, or that's not what I want, or that's not what I meant. So that you, you could yep. keep, it'd be a break to pull. It is somewhat counterintuitive. If you imagine building a truly super intelligent general AI so that it's, this is a mind that exceeds us in every capacity that we have. And the only difference is that we built it to serve us in some sense. Yep. Again, let's leave consciousness out of this and just assume that you can get human level intelligence and beyond without consciousness necessarily coming along for the ride. Mm -hmm. As you said at the outset, the existence of consciousness creates another problem, which we might want to talk about, but now we have an ethical obligation toward this superintelligent system that can be made happy or suffer or be deprived of happiness in, in ways that perhaps we can't even imagine. And I would argue that if we built a superhuman AI that was superhumanly conscious, well, we've just built something that is actually ethically of greater concern than, than we are, just as we're of greater concern than, <laughs> than squirrels and crickets. Yeah. But let's leave that aside. So we have a superintelligent artifact that we have no reason to think is conscious. But if it is, in fact, superintelligent across the board, I mean, what would that dialogue be like with our own goals and our own preferences? Because at some level, this thing, I mean, one, one of the reasons why we would want this thing is to tell us what we should want and how, like, to, to deepen our wants and goals so as to maximize human flourishing to a degree that may be currently unimaginable. And how do you keep a, a slave that is, in every respect, more competent to judge the wisdom of what you're doing than you are? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, these are great questions. I mean, the, the, the notion of human flourishing is itself problematic. Uh, you know, who, who's to define what constitutes human flourishing? Some people might have visions of uh, you know, conquering the universe, uh, and others might have visions of, you know, a stable, peaceful, uh, dutiful agrarian mm. existence. And who knows? And I think one point to make is that it would be nice to have a choice, as opposed to being driven by conflict, by limited resources, by the sort of inexplicable tides of history that that sometimes just lead us to utter catastrophe. It would be nice to have a choice. How we make that choice, This I, I can't tell you how we make that choice. But one thing that's clear to me, at least, is that one of the things humans value is autonomy. And a future where every decision is made by a machine, or every significant decision is made by a machine, and and our you know our material needs are all met. This doesn't feel to me like a desirable future, and it it might be the case that that what AI systems do for us in the long run is give us this freedom of choice to have to have some ability to shape our future 
and avoid these catastrophic problems that we frequently get ourselves into, but to some extent to stay largely in the background. So to to give us freedom and help us understand, I think, what we do really want, but not to be constantly apparent for us. And so there's there's a story by E.M. Forster um, called The Machine Stops, which I I recommend to all your listeners. Uh, and uh, it was written in 1909, I think. And it's it's an amazing story because it has the internet. It has uh, basically iPads, video chat. Uh, it has MOOCs, uh, massively online open mm. courses. In fact, that's what most people do is is give MOOC lectures and listen to MOOC lectures. Um, and and the machine, hmm. is it's called in, in the book, the machine sort of looks after everyone's material needs to the point where humans become enfeebled. They, they don't go outside anymore. They don't even bother visiting each other because they can do video chat. They become very, very effete. Uh, and in fact, even the sort of um, couch potato obesity uh, is described in this 1909 story, which we think of as a very modern thing. Hmm. I, I'd heard of that. I've never read it, but I don't associate Forrester with an H.G. Wells' ability to uh, uh, Yeah, the it's truly uh, amazing. In fact, I, I would say it's much more prescient than most of what H.G. Wells wrote. And uh, so, hmm. so what happens to human society is, is that as a society becomes gradually more and more dependent on the machine until it you cannot function independently at all uh, and gradually loses its uh, like the de-skilling process that we talk about now with with pilots, for example. Uh, it, the human society gradually loses its understanding of even how the machine works. And so when it uh, when it stops working, uh, the human race is in real trouble. so we we clearly would want to avoid mm. that kind of future. and and if you if you ask me, you know what what is the scenario? You know, so Bostrom has his paperclip scenario where we accidentally tell a super intelligent machine to make paperclips and, and it, you know, turns the whole planet into paperclips or the Kansas scenario that I mentioned. So those, those are very simple, just thought experiments, just to illustrate the point that seemingly innocuous or even desirable goals by themselves can be arbitrarily bad. But if you, if you ask me, what is a likely scenario that we may follow that will lead us, you know, into a dead end. Uh, it seems to me that this enfeeblement and de-skilling and gradual loss of autonomy is is a mm -hmm. much more likely scenario to occur. Even and we have to be vigilant against this. Um, so if you've ever seen Wall-E, which is a very subversive movie, that's precisely the uh, the scenario that it's describing. For the future of the human race, that we become enfeebled, obese, mm -hmm. uh, and completely dependent on machines that serve all of our material needs, um, and we lose autonomy uh, almost completely. Yeah, there was a, actually I had another podcast guest, David Krakauer, who runs the Santa Fe Institute. He has this concept of two different types of cognitive artifacts: cooperative ones and competitive ones. The cooperative ones actually make us better even in their absence. His example is if you learn to use an abacus, you actually become better at calculating even without the abacus. You can, you can, do the, you can, you can internalize the abacus and you can do 
calculations that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And language is a, a cooperative artifact. And there's things that, you know, the concept of numbers are things that we have invented that we, we can internalize whether or not they, they're actually devices in the world. And yet there are other things that are cognitively competitive artifacts that we actually, we get worse because we have delegated all of this operation to a machine or to some other artifact, which when it breaks down, we no longer know how to do the thing we used to know how to do perfectly well, whether it's a long division or, or anything else, flying planes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, driving cars is in the very near term something we are going to probably to the to the benefit of tens of thousands of lives every year. We will blissfully forget how to drive cars at some point because it will be irresponsible to drive your own car once robot cars are truly safe. You could argue that even without AI, the internet is already almost there in terms of if if this machine stops, it's hard to picture what would happen to a society like. You know the United States with a with an internet outage that lasted six months. I mean, do you think we are already fatally dependent on on our technology <laughs> long before we've birthed uh, super intelligent AI? I don't know about fatally, but certainly very yeah, very dependent. I mean, our economy would would almost collapse. I think we would muddle through. Yeah, we'd be squarely in some sort of dystopia for a good long while. Yes, I, I think yeah, we would we would see possibly starvation in cities, uh, you know, the complete termination of, of a large fraction of industrial production and, and transportation systems and so on. Uh, I mean, you, you see this, you know, you, when an airline's online reservation systems goes down, you know, they end up having to cancel tens of thousands of flights over if it goes down for several days. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think this, this is just, a a small example of something that we need, uh, you know, and how do we avoid this? Because, you know, the, it's always easier to take the instantaneous convenience without thinking about the loss of autonomy that it entails. Um, and before you lose it, before you suffer any consequences of lost autonomy, you would have the immense power of having successfully delegated your apish operations to a super intelligent AI. So the community that decides, well, I just want intelligence at my beck and call, that community will be far more powerful than, by comparison, a kind of Luddite, you know, kind of the the Amish of the future where they're trying to maintain (laughs) their autonomy in the face of all of these, these immense computational resources. There's another dystopian wrinkle here, which I talked about in, in my TED Talk, which is even if everything goes exactly as we would want it to go, so it's as though we're just handed a perfectly obedient, benevolent, super intelligent AI, you could still see things going spectacularly wrong for us because we are not economically or politically poised to absorb this perfect labor-saving device. Because it is just the this is a wealth creation device of a sort that has never existed. It can design the machine, that can build the machine, that can do anything. It can replace any human labor, not just drudgery, but the sort of labor that, that you and I do. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in a perfect world, we would then all be free to just enjoy ourselves in every way that we want and to have those pleasures be supported, perfected, protected by 
increasingly powerful labor-saving technology. And so we'd be playing Frisbee in the park, and no one would have to justify their existence by working because there would be more wealth than, than we could ever consume just pulled out of the ether by these superhuman machines. But of course, we are nowhere near ready, apparently, to share this wealth in this way. What I pictured, you know, somewhat in somewhat of a cartoon, but I pictured, you know, you know, we could have, would have trillionaires on the covers of our business magazines and, you know, 50% unemployment in the United States. So that there's a bottleneck there that we have to figure out how to negotiate, even if we were given a perfect version of this technology, which, as you've already said, is by no means guaranteed. We need the political and economic mechanisms to use this gift for the benefit of all humanity. And, and I don't really see many people thinking about how to do that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this that's the beginning of another hour's conversation, at least, um, to to talk about the effect on the economy and employment. And I'm not I'm not one of those who who says, well, you know, we've had these technological revolutions before, and we'll have them in, again, and and we always figure out new jobs for people to do, uh, because as you say, um, if if the machine can now replace not just the physical labor of the human, and and very few humans are uh, relatively speaking, are involved physical labor compared to what was the situation in the 19th century. And if you also replace the mental labor, then you know what is what is left. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, and you there there isn't just an infinite supply of, of new capabilities that humans have that they can that they can use for employment. So I think you know briefly one thing that humans have is the fact that they're human and the fact that other humans. Uh, value the attention, the company, the services of 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 human beings, and as long as that's true, then there can still be useful roles. But the the kind of society and economy that that entails, if it's not to be, as you described, uh, a, a very thin elite supported by uh, you know a somewhat thicker layer of, of personal servants, and then everyone else. You know, 95% of the population being uh, essentially unemployed, just fed and housed and entertained and, and mm. left to play frisbee. Um, th that, to me, is 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 a terrible future for the human race. So, so on both of these fronts, one, one being, you know, how do we think about our uh, the value of our autonomy in the future, and the other being, you know, how do, how do we construct a functioning society in in the presence of of these kinds of capabilities? I think there's there's a limited amount that that the technocrats, the AI researchers and roboticists and so on, uh, or even the economists can do. I think it has to be a cultural process. Uh, you know, a huge amount of cultural work has to be done to work through all these questions and and first of all to give people understanding of what the questions are. And and I think you know, for example, movies are doing a good job of this. Are there any movies that you think get this, get these concerns right? I mean, what, what's the most compelling vision of, you know, whether it's utopian or dystopian that you've seen? Uh, so I think there are, there, there are bits and pieces of the story that are done well in different movies. So I think um, Transcendence gets across the idea of, of intelligence explosion and kind of the, the, the sense of humanity losing control in the face of a much more intelligent machine. 
Um, you know, some other parts of the plot are a bit less, uh, a bit less excellent, but it has excellent aspects. Um, I think Ex Machina gives you a very clear sense of, of the, as we were talking about earlier, the, the black box of it, uh, of a system that is very intelligent, but you really have no idea how it's working or what its objectives are mm. or what's going on. And, and in a in a very sort of one on one sense, you it, it's it's like the chess match idea, uh, except in microcosm. Let's linger on that for a second because that displayed a property of of an intelligent system, which I think many people find totally counterintuitive. The idea that an intelligent machine we would build might lie to us or manipulate us to meet its own goals or to even meet goals we've given it but it sees another way of meeting them. Is there a reason to think that manipulation on the part of superhuman AI is implausible in, in principle? No, not at all. We have poker-playing programs that, that bluff. So in, in some sense, lie, they lie to us to beat us at poker. Mm. It seems to fall right out of just having goals in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it, deception... I mean, you know, kid, kids learn this at a fairly early age, they have goals and they, they lie in order to achieve them. Mm. Um, you know, they say, oh, no, I haven't seen the candy, daddy. I have no idea where it is. No, I, I think a lot of the stories that people, whether it's lay people or the AI community, tell themselves in order not to have to worry about it uh, are just stories. And I, I, I re recently wrote a paper where I listed uh, about 15 of the arguments that have come out of the AI community uh, as to why there is no reason to be concerned. Mm. Um, and when you when you look at these, they, they all have the flavor of a kind of a fright response, a mm. knee-jerk kind of denial. And, and the arguments are just not worthy of the people who are making them. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are arguments which say, that superintelligent AI is a long way off, and as yet we don't have much sense of of what it will be like, what shape it will have at all. Um, and so it's hard to to know what to do, even if you acknowledge that potentially you know one kind of superintelligent AI system could present a risk to the human race. Um, but I think you know our, that's a legitimate line of argument. But I think our research suggests that in fact even in the absence of, of any details about what the systems will be like, we can, we can start to do work that will allow us to construct templates that, unlike more classical kinds of optimizing of objectives, uh, do seem to be potentially safe. Uh, they, they clearly have better properties from the point of view of you, you remaining in control uh, and avoiding these misalignment issues. The reason why the time horizon for me is a deeply uninteresting and, and unconsoling thing to reference is twofold. One is that there's a quote I used of yours in my TED Talk, which suggests that, that we have, under different descriptions, a very different response to certain blocks of time. So I mean, you, you said, I believe this quote originates with you, but it's, I, I think you, it first appeared in the article you wrote jointly with Max and, and Stephen Hawking. In a, in a British paper, but I, I think I've heard you use it. I think you used it at the, the conference we were at in, in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago. Uh -huh. The idea that 
if we received an email, I think you said, from a alien civilization, and it said, people of Earth, we will arrive on your planet in 50 years, get ready, we would be far more motivated than we are when we hear a technologist denying that there's a problem here because it's going to take at least 50 years to develop. So 50 years is just not that much time once you imagine this thing actually arriving on a certain day. But the, the other problem for me is that, let's say we, just, we knew it was going to be 50 years or 100 years, we still don't know how long it will take us to do it safely. I mean, that's only consoling on the proposition that, that you know it, you, it, it only takes you 49 years to do this safely, so you've got enough time to yep. do, do right. it safely. So, and and the, other th- the other thing is that, you know, with, with for example, the aliens who say they're going to be 50 years or an asteroid where you can calculate the collision time, achieving superintelligent AI requires breakthroughs that, that can happen overnight. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, an example I often give in talks is, is what happened with nuclear physics, where the physics establishment, uh, as embodied, for example, by Rutherford, uh, who was probably the leading nuclear physicist of his time, was convinced that, uh, you know, even though they knew there was massive, a massive amount of energy locked up in the atom, they were convinced that there was no way to release it. Uh, you know, and, and Rutherford gave a famous speech uh, on September 11th, 1933, where he said that you know, a- anyone who talks about this possibility is talking moonshine. Mm. Um, and then the next morning, Leo Zillard figured out uh, the, the key idea, which is uh, a chain reaction that's mediated by neutrons. Mm-hmm. So the nuclear chain reaction. So it went from never to, you know, less than 24 yeah, hours. Literally the next morning. That's a, a sobering analogy. So I... I I would say, you know, it's hard to quantify these things, but I think we we need about half a dozen breakthroughs of that magnitude uh, to get something uh, that we would call general AI. Hmm. Um, It's very hard to predict, but given the rate of investment, the the massive concentration of intellectual resources into the field right now, uh, and and the fact that progress seems to be accelerating, uh, you know, one problem after another, is being knocked down that that you know has has been problems of of decades uh, of work. Yeah, it doesn't give me much optimism to say. Well, you know, it's we're still a long way off. Uh, you know, and what I am seeing, you know, one one of the arguments that I'm seeing in the AI community, you know, of the fifteen that I mentioned, one that seems to be cropping up quite often is, well, you know, don't worry because in fact, human level AI is impossible. Mm-hmm. So we can't ever get there. And it's like, well, you know, the AI community has been saying exactly the opposite for the last 60 years. The philosophers have been saying that AI is impossible. And the AI community has been saying, no, no, it's not impossible. And you're just confused and, and old-fashioned. And, and absolutely, human-level AI is possible. Well, the argument that it's impossible presupposes that there is something magical about a, a computer made of meat, or that, that there's something that our brains are doing that is something that cannot yeah, be mediated in any other physical system or, or any physical right, system we are going to Sam, build. Sam, it's, yeah, Sam, it's not, it's, not as, it's not as complicated as that. They present no justification whatsoever right. <laughs> for it being impossible, other than, well, if it's impossible, I don't have to worry about it. Uh, so I'm just going to assume it's impossible. Right? And it's so inconsistent with our own history as a field 
and and it comes with absolutely no technical justification whatsoever, even even of the magical kind, um, that it it can only be a form of denial, uh, and and that's disappointing uh, to me. Is this paper of yours available online now? Can can I link to it on my blog for, from where where I embed this podcast? Not yet, no, but it. It's in press. I think it will come out. It's it's a chapter in a book that will come out uh, probably early next year. Okay. Um, but um, so I just wanted to say one one more thing that people may want to watch, which is the the TV series called Humans, mm. which comes from uh, I think Channel Four in the UK, and to me that gives a very clear accounting of the kinds of sociological issues, so relating to employment, sense of purpose, autonomy, and so on, uh, that would arise in, in, in the series. The assumption is that we've created uh, effectively human level, not particularly superhuman, but human level intelligence embodied in very physically realistic uh, androids. They, they, they look very much like human beings. And uh, so it's it's very, very interesting. It's very much done uh, not in a sort of a giant sci-fi style, but in in looking at a, a one family, the the people in the family, the particular android who works with the family, and so on. I mean, there is a larger plot which you'll have to watch the mm-hmm. the series to find out about. But I think it really it, it's quite excellent in in describing the very practical day to day adjustments of human society to the presence of these intelligent uh, intelligent robots. You've been great. You've been very generous with your time, and sorry about the lost sleep. <laughs> That's my own. Briefly, tell us: Are you on uh, social media? Is there any w- web address or Twitter account you want people to know about? Uh, so my my webpage. The easiest thing is just to type my name into Google, mm. uh, and that'll take you straight to my webpage. It'll be on my blog as well. Thanks again, Stuart. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Before I close here, I'd like to thank those of you who have begun supporting the podcast. This has allowed me to spend more time doing it, and it also has inspired me to begin thinking creatively about how I could make this a more substantial project. And this could entail many things. It could entail renting a studio where I can do more of these interviews face-to-face rather than over Skype, which would improve them significantly. It might allow me to hire a producer who could bring a level of professionalism to this that I can't seem to muster on my own. When I listen to podcasts like Serial or any of these other highly produced shows, there are aspects to that that I would like to be able to emulate here. I could hire a researcher that could help me move into new content areas. And I could even produce live events associated with the podcast. This sort of thing becomes possible once this achieves a stable basis of support. So if you've begun helping in that way, please know how much I appreciate that. Uh, And if you'd like to help, you can do that at samharris.org forward slash support. Or you can support the podcast on a per-episode basis through patreon.com forward slash samharris. And again, many thanks. Thanks.